Hey everybody, uh, JD Hansel here. So I've got a treat for you. Um, I've been sitting on this audio for a very long time. This is the audio from a talk that I did at the University of Maryland, or really that I uh, just moderated between Brian J. Jones, the author of Jim Henson's biography, uh, and Brian Reel, who had been teaching a course on Jim Henson at the University of Maryland. This is from a year ago. This is from last April. Um, and I had already uploaded it as a video, so I didn't really feel the need to put it out there as a podcast as well. But after sitting on it for a while, I thought, let me listen to it again to see if it would be good as a podcast. And I think it really is. I think it's good stuff. It's odd because it's, it's very different from... Uh, the usual thing that I release as a podcast on Muppet Hub. That's part of why I was reluctant, but it's good. It's it's different because, first of all, it's going to sort of back up and assume that you may not know hardly anything about the history of Jim Henson and the Muppets, whereas normally on Muppet Hub we assume you already have a lot of that information and we build inside jokes on that information. But it's going to teach you a lot of things you probably didn't know or at least didn't understand in context just because of the second thing that makes it stand out, it's from a bit more of an academic perspective. So we've got Brian Reel involved, who, um, uh, unfortunately, I, I don't believe he's teaching the Jim Henson course at the University of Maryland anymore since he moved on to become the assistant professor of information and library science at uh, Southern Connecticut State University. But Brian Reel's background is in the regulations, the uh, economic changes, geographical changes, all of the different kinds of changes in the media landscape that tend to get overlooked when we're more focused on the genius of a creator like Jim Henson. He understands how to uh, really look at the timeline of media from the perspective that we all tend to ignore, in part because it can get kind of um, I don't want to say boring, but there is a lot of jargon that comes with the territory of television regulations, um, but he's able to break all of that down and make it all pretty easy to understand. And so we get this one history of the changes in media over time and why, you know, The Muppet Show happened the way it did and why Sesame Street happened the way it did and so on and so forth, put together with the changes in Jim Henson's own life provided by Brian J. Jones. And <laughs> Brian, I mean, I could just listen to this guy tell stories about the life of Jim Henson till the cows come home. Like, he just has all of my favorite stories about Jim Henson in his head. Uh, ready to pull out at any moment. I mean, he should really write them in a book. But hey, you already know enough about uh, Brian J. Jones. I think I've given you a fair enough introduction to uh, Brian Reel and just how much great historical context he's bringing to this discussion and the nature of this discussion and why this is a bit different from the way that Jim Henson's work is usually framed, which is why I like it. Hopefully you'll like it too. Hopefully you'll learn some things that you didn't know. Um, I had a lot of fun hosting it. It was cool. Enjoy. Hi, hole, everybody! All right. That's pretty good. That, that was a Kermit the Frog, so that means it's your time to applaud. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Hi there, everybody. So, hi, everyone. I'm JD Hansel from MuppetHub.com, a little Muppet fan site where we like to do some fun Muppet fan things and talk to cool Muppety people. That's what we're going to do tonight. But also, I'm a student here at the University of Maryland. And so that means I get the privilege of being a part of a group of 
uh, faculty, teachers, and me, known as the Henson Committee, unofficially, a group that's trying to get some more focus on Jim Henson here at the university, get more people excited about the legacy of Jim Henson here uh, at UMD. At the moment, we're actually seeking uh, some new student or students who would be interested in uh, offering a student's perspective to the group since I will be graduating soon. So sad. Um, so if you have any interest in that, you can talk to me afterwards. <laughs> let's, let's talk about what we're doing here tonight. This is an experiment. So the way that Jim Henson is usually discussed, um, typically, it, it, it's I think pretty typical of great American figures. We like to believe that he was such an interesting and special individual that the forces of history had no effect on making his career what it was. Everything about his work, we like to assume, just came from his genius. Uh, and while Henson was obviously a unique person and very, very much a creative genius, very, very much so, I've, I've devoted far too much of my life to focusing on that genius, um, I think it's the obligation of academic institutions, or at least the ones offering a program in film studies like this one, to try to contextualize the genius with the changes in technology and distribution and economics and changes in society uh, that played a part in making Henson's work what it is. So we're going to try to use this conversation here between three people to generate some, hopefully somewhat cohesive uh, perspective on Henson that you don't normally get to hear, a more academic perspective. Now, with that said, we've got just the right person here to do that. Well, just, just the right people here to do that, but I was going to make it a segue specifically uh, to Brian Reel, who has actually been teaching a course on Jim Henson, which is, well, very, very similar to what we're doing. I hope you don't think we're plagiarizing you, That's Brian. Fine. Would you like to tell us about, what you, about yourself and what you do with the course? Yeah, so let's start by talking about me. That's a good place to start. Um, I'm Brian Reel. I, um, did a PhD here at University of Maryland in what they call information studies, but it's basically libraries and archives. And I have a background in both public libraries and much more relevantly, film archives. And while I was here at Maryland, I worked for the film studies program for the, before it existed actually for a group of faculty who helped to start it. So we've had the Jim Henson statue for years. It was put up, I think, right after I finished my undergrad. Um, and he's our most famous graduate. There might be others who are more impactful, but not as fun. <laughs> and as we're starting up the program, and I'm starting to get offered opportunities to teach at different times, you know, especially during summer and winter, it's like, what do you want to propose teaching? And it's a choice of, do you want to be handed another intro to film, or do you want to come up with something? So I had a few ideas that I pitched. Um, and what the, one of the ones that went through was, let's actually do something with Henson. And the immediate question among some of the faculty was, all right, so what is this going to be? How is this not a fluff class? And fortunately, right around that time, other Brian's biography of Jim Henson had just come out. And I knew a lot of the history already, but reading through and getting into some of it, you have a guy, you know, I wanted to be a serious media history, media economics class. Also some regulation stuff, basically political, what you call political economy of mass media if you're from a communications background. Um, and we have a course that handles that up until like the 40s. We didn't have anything that covered afterwards. Um, especially because we're more concentrated in film, we don't do that much with TV. So. I start looking at Henson's life, and you have this guy 
who breaks into television when it's mostly live, mostly local, low barriers to entry, so you can break into it pretty easily, but low returns, so you weren't getting rich right off the bat. And Henson's breaking in as a high schooler, as a teen puppeteer for a kid's show, when kid shows were still local. He goes from that to having a local um, twice a night, five minute puppet show that's more aimed towards adult, the whole family, but you know, some twisted humor and things like that, when you could still do that, when the local TV affiliates would do that. But he goes from this kid who's working in local TV when you could do that, to having production elements of his company in London, in New York, in Los Angeles, um, working in TV, movies, tons of merchandising stuff around it and so on, and about to be part of what is now probably the biggest um, entertainment media empire. So, whole sweep of it right there. For those of you listening to this, just so we're clear, I will be referring to Brian Real as Brian and Brian J. Jones as Brian. So you will never be confused. You guys will never be confused either. I think we're all on the same page. Speaking of the different Brian's, Hi there. Hey there, JD. Welcome back. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you again. So, this here is Brian J. Jones, the author of Jim Henson, the biography, and I have a blurb. I said short. This is half a page. You want me to do no, the whole thing? Really thing? No. You don't want no, me. You don't have to do that. Would you like to talk about yourself, or sure, should I I'll talk make, about you? We I can, can make it very quick. Cool. Um, so, if anyone ever asks you what you're going to do with an English degree, because that was my major and my degree is in English, uh, you can tell them you can go research and awesome people like Jim Henson with it. So. Um, so uh, I was actually in politics for 25 years, 30 years almost before I started writing biography. But uh, the Washington Post has described my uh, particular niche as slightly off-center American geniuses, which is a description I love. I've written biographies of Washington Irving, Jim Henson, George Lucas, and I'm now writing a biography of Dr. Seuss. So I pretty much own your collective childhoods. <laughs> um, so, uh, and what I love about biography more than anything is, and we were Brian, the other Brian and I were talking just before we came in is, you get to bury yourself in archives, and you get to, you know, you get to interview cool people, and you get to. Um, I love sense of place and sense of object. And one of the neat things when I was um, researching the Jim Henson book, it was. Um, they permitted me free and open access to their archives, which was one of the things I really wanted for that book. I, when I was discussing with the family, you know, writing this book, and Lisa Henson said, you know, if we tell you no, are you going to do it anyway? And I said, well, you know, I, you really can't do it the way I would like to do it unless you have access to that archives. And their archives are not at the University of Connecticut. They're not at the University of Maryland. They are privately held in the offices of the Jim Henson Company in Long Island City, New York. So you have to have their permission to be in there. And so archives to me are always key. Um, because you have great things. Jim was, was a great, uh, I don't say hoarder, but he was one of these people who um, kept everything and every once in a while he would just kind of empty junk from his pockets out into these boxes and just keep them. And it was Karen's job uh, much later to go through and organize these things. But Jim would, I mean, he would keep everything. And so one of the great parts and the great fun of biography is going through these archives and you'll pull out, you know, when Jim was doing The Muppet Show, he had a, a leather bound folder that had his name on it and The Muppet Show logo. And the script for that week would go inside there. And he would hold it for the week and then replace it. I mean, so I, you know, you get to hold that actual document, that actual object. Um, one of the things I loved in the archives, and uh, so much that I made a color photocopy of it, was Jim's passport. <laughs> um, because it's a normal passport, but when Jim was going between New York and London doing the Muppet Show, he was going back and forth almost weekly sometimes. So you will open, <laughs> you'll open up this passport, and almost an accordion goes, <laughs> falls out. They had to just keep adding pages to it. 
uh, as Jim went back and forth and back and forth, so just these long pages fall out of this thing and they're stapled inside of it. And I actually photocopied just the picture of, of, his, of, his, um, of his main page with his photo, which even Jim Henson's photo, or passport photo was terrible. Um, and the other thing that I love about that is, you know, Jim on, in both his driver's license and his passport self-reports his height as six foot two. I would ask every Muppet performer, everybody who knew Jim, tell me how tall Jim was. And they'd say, oh, well, I'm, I'm six foot, he had to be six four, six, maybe six six maybe, and say he's six two. He can't be six two. I'm six two, Frank Oz, I'm six two, Jim was taller than me. Nope, just goes to show you the way Jim was regarded by people. He was six foot two and everyone to a person swore he was much taller than that. Wow, and now I have to try to find a segue from that <laughs> to my slideshow. And so, speaking of that, I'm gonna talk about something completely different. Okay, nice segue. I know, right? I'm just, I'm so smooth. You can tell I've done these events so many times. So what you're looking at right here, this. Uh, is the cast of Sam and Friends. You'll recognize Kermit the Frog. You probably will not recognize anyone else. This was the show that Jim Henson was working on uh, right here when he was living in uh, Hyattsville, just down the road. And I think it's worth, since we're talking about changes uh, in the industry and the, the relationship between that and Henson's career, I think we should first clarify what it is that made the creation of the Muppets, even just this very primitive form of them, so different? What makes these puppets, Brian, different from the way that puppetry had been done before? You want me to take that? So I th I th one of the big things about the Muppets, uh, and the Muppets especially in the early days on TV, is because we were all raised, even I'm not old enough to have been raised in this. I was, <laughs> I was generation 1.0 for Sesame Street. But, but so we all grew up in an era when we know what puppets look like at TVs. They have functioning mouths, um, you know, they have, so, uh, and they use the entire space on the TV screen. Mm -hmm. Before Jim came along, a puppet show, puppets on television, was essentially somebody would set up a puppet theater, they would hang a curtain on it, the puppeteer would stand behind it and poke the puppets out from behind it. Puppets like Kuka Fran and Ollie, the main character had a painted face, little hands that you'd move with your fingers like this, the mouth didn't move, it was painted. Jim realized when he gets into puppets on TV, you gotta get rid of that, because you're on TV, that camera is in there close. This is not a puppet show. So you make a puppet there, the mouth opens. So that's, that's actually already a big innovation with puppets on TV is all of Jim's puppets have mouths that operate. Um, Jim's actually figured out how to create the eyes. If you slightly cross them, they actually all of a sudden focus. So they actually appear that they're paying attention to the camera. So Muppets are built for TV in those two ways automatically. First of all, the mouths work and the eyes mm -hmm. are focused. But the other thing Jim figures out, which you can't just see, tell from this, but um, is if you're on TV, you don't need that puppet theater. Jim knows intuitively that the puppet theater is the four sides of the TV screen. Throw out that puppet theater and use the entire space. And maybe JD will show you some of these, but if you watch Muppet routines on 60s one, Jim's got him coming in from the bottom. You watch Menomina, he comes in from the side, he comes in from the top, he raises up from the bottom. Jim throws out that puppet theater. That's so, this didn't look like anything else you would have seen on TV at the time because until then, it was a little filmed puppet show like you would see at a birthday party. And he could work with a monitor. Right, that's that a huge innovation. The fact that he could look over and see what the viewers would see, there was always a monitor working as part of this to do it. And it's worth keeping in mind that we always think of movies and TV as connected, that TV evolved out of movies, which isn't really that much the case as much as you would think. Mo TV replaced people's radios mm -hmm. more so. 
that most of radio, it wasn't just playing, you know, whatever pop albums or whatever, it, and some talk stuff. It was live drama, things like that. And a big sell of radio was that it was direct, it was live, and so forth. Television, for its early years, was doing a lot of live plays, a lot of you're broadcasting from wherever. Um, since that was still expensive to do, you would get, that's why you had so much local programming, because there was still that attraction to it being live and having that in it. So I think because you were talking about uh, the nature of television at the time, we should talk about uh, Jim's commercials, because here's just one little frame I found. I'm not going to be showing videos uh, tonight, partly for legal reasons. I don't know that I'd be allowed to show videos, um, if, especially if this is going out online. But also, I would like to make sure that you all go see a lot of this video footage at the event that's going to happen next week. Next week, again, you'll get to see these in far better quality than I could present them if I wanted to. But what you're seeing right here is a gun pointed at a cute, adorable little puppet who will not buy Wilkins coffee. Um, and that's almost the setup for most of these commercials. You have Wilkins over there, who's on your right, who wants you to buy Wilkins coffee. Then there's Wonkins, and he won't have Wilkins coffee. He doesn't want to drink any. And so you get commercial after commercial, um, where it's some setup that ends up with Wonkins getting hurt. And it can be pretty violent. Sometimes it's a cannon pointed at him that gets then turned at the audience. So what do you think of Wilkins? Um, so uh, there's one in which he gets sent to the electric chair. Am I missing any good ones? Uh, one, the Washington Monument falls on him. Mm -hmm. uh, another time, Mr. Wilkins himself crushes Wonkins. Yeah. Uh, another time, he blows up the TVs. Yeah, there's all sorts of terrible ways of you know, dispensing with Wonkins. And it's, it, it's, it's shocking to us because it seems so, oh, once he gets stabbed with a knife. I love That's that true. one. Another time, he gets yeah. cut by a buzzsaw. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, it's in Scratchy, essentially. So <laughs> this, this strikes us as interesting because we wouldn't expect that kind of violence from television. But I think because it was basically cartoon violence, this probably would have been seen as still interesting, but that's, that was probably what made it okay. The reason why I brought this up is because these were commercials that weren't doing the hard sell, they were funny. And that strikes me as unusual for the time, would you say? Somewhat, it was, and commercials were a lot shorter too. They were just a few about seconds rather seconds. than the, yeah, about 10 seconds maybe instead of the usual 30 seconds, they would just be more of a, pro they were closer to magazine advertising even. They were just, they had the, they figured out that it was a visual form. They didn't really have the long form narrative figured out. So Henson's kind of working when that develops. And by the time he's out of the commercial game, you have Doyle Byrne, Bain, Doyle, DDB. Look it up, I can't remember <laughs> DDB. But the, you know, huge <coughs> advertising company and basically the Mad Men era. And he could have actually kept that going. He yeah. could have made an entire career out of that, except he had other TV projects, Sesame Street and so on launching, and he decided to do you know, the less selling out thing. Yeah. If you watch Mad Men, you'll actually hear a throwaway line in one episode where they're working on something and they say, they've actually used puppets to sell coffee. They're trying to figure out their coffee campaign and they actually, yeah. they don't mention them up so they talk about using puppets to sell coffee. But what's fascinating about these two, so Wilkins Coffee was a local area DC brand, but 
I'm trying to think of some of the other brands. Uh, Crammel, Crammel Milk. Um, there was, I can't remember the one down in Boston. But yeah, just there coffee. One in, yeah, one in New Orleans. So uh, Community Coffee, community, yeah. which I went to a community coffee shop while in New Orleans. And there's all these other coffee brands where there's ads that are the same puppets. They don't use the same names. I don't think that they use names in the other ones. No, they did. They did. They did. And, okay. and what's interesting is Jim could have probably taken his old commercials and just redubbed them with them saying the names of the other commercial, but he wouldn't do that because the mouth wouldn't have looked right. So Jim would actually refilm. Because yeah. what happens, people would see these commercials and say, we want that for our coffee we're selling in Boston. And rather than just say, fine, I'll, you can pay me and here's the commercial, we'll just redub it. Jim would actually reshoot the commercial right. with their logo hanging in the background. How and much... How much filming did he do? Tons. Lots of it. He actually did it, um, it was in, uh, over in, um, right across the river in Washington, D.C., right over where the, mm -hmm. the, the subway is over there, over in the metro yeah. stop. But all these different coffee brands, it's this bizarre thing where five years later, he wouldn't have been able to get away with that. Right. What it was at the time is that you have this period of innovation where televisions coming into people's homes around the same time that we're building the national highway system okay. um, and they're doing some expansions on rail freight at the time um, plus refrigerated cars things like that that all came together to make national brands before that each region would have a coffee company so he could self plagiarize and sell to another market and old man Wilkins didn't care um, it's a completely different market for that um, he cares about selling his own coffee in D.C., part of Maryland, part of Virginia. That's it. Um, and this is right after you've had the, the comic book problem, the seduction of the innocent issues with violence in comics. Mm -hmm. Everyone's turning to go you know, put their focus on comic books, and Jim's doing this in plain sight uh, <laughs> yeah. on, on TV, across the, actually across the country, finally, at one point. And what's interesting is you have people who are just, you know, some people are beside themselves about violence on TV and violence in comics, and there's actually, I think, a bit of the letters in the book. There's a U.S. congressman who somebody <laughs> asks, asks him about it, and he says, I think they're, they're charming. <laughs> so there was something about the way Jim did this that people just, somebody actually said, wrote a note and said, well, everybody wants to kill their spouse in the morning anyway. Um, so I, I think Jim just got away with it because look at these guys. They're not going to hurt anybody. I mean, it's, so he, I mean, he really gets away with it. And again, this is Jim's design sense also you're seeing up here. This is Ernie and Bert. This is short and fat and tall and skinny. Mm -hmm. It's Beaker and Bunsen. So you're already seeing Jim's design sense show up in these commercials. It's very easy to understand right away. You know who's, you know who's going to get it just looking at the way these characters are designed. It's probably a subliminal classic form as well because it's also Laurel and Laurel Hardy. Mm -hmm. Abbott and Costello. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That he would have seen how many times over. Now, it's interesting because in a way, Jim's commercial work led right into Sesame Street, or that was what got him, mm -hmm. that's, that's what got the folks at Sesame interested in Henson's work. And yet, he takes a detour before Sesame, or sort of as he's doing commercials. Um, he moves into experimental filmmaking mm -hmm. with stuff like The Cube um, and uh, Timepiece and Youth 68, these films that are, in some cases, almost like avant-garde films. Certainly in the case of Timepiece, that is just quick cut montage, very, very strange. You cut from Jim uh, running while wearing a suit to painting an elephant pink to a gorilla on a pogo stick, just seemingly random cuts all around. And my first question is, 
what would explain this surprising detour in, in Henson's career? Or is it even a detour? Is it something that Henson wanted to do all along? Let, let me start, and I'll go to you, because you'll be able to answer it in the larger context. I can, let me yeah. answer it in the context of Jim. So I think the 60s is probably the most fascinating period in Jim's life, because Jim's, I mean, Jim's born in 36. So when the 60s come along, he's, he's not quite really a hippie. He's already married with a family when in, you know, his first child's born in 1960. But Jim, you know, he looks like a hippie, but Jim's really trying to figure out what he wants to do still. He doesn't really know if this, you know, he, he loves the Muppets. He considers himself kind of a filmmaker. So in the 60s, what I, what I love about Jim's work in the 60s, it's, it's, him, it's him trying a little bit of everything to see what he wants to do. And what's, what's really fascinating to me, if you pull the, commercial, the, the commercials, the newspaper ads he puts in the papers in New York City at that time, promoting his company's Muppets Incorporated. So he's got these ads talking about the Muppets, and he says, we do. Short films like the two, like like timepiece. We do uh, little documentaries like Youth sixty eight. We do the Cube. Uh, these experimental pieces like this, and and we also do puppets. It's the very last thing he puts on the list. I mean, G Jim almost considers. I, I don't think he considers the Muppets kid stuff. He doesn't consider it slumming, but it's just one of the many things he does. So the sixties is an era I love because it's Jim as an artist. It's Jim trying to decide as an artist. What's he going to do? And he does have the luxury, and this is where I'll turn it over to Brian. He has the luxury of time and money to do that at this point yeah. in his career because he is making a lot of money from his commercial work. Uh, and you remember a couple of years ago during the Super Bowl when the Muppets were doing commercials for Toyota or something, and people were wringing their hands on the internet and on Twitter. Jim would be rolling over in his grave. The Muppets are selling cars. So we just saw the Muppets have been selling stuff since 1958. So that actually gave Jim his artistic and creative freedom. He needed to do all sorts of things while he figures it out, figures out what he's going to do. Yeah, and he liked toys. Anytime he could get his hands on some sort of new technology to experiment with, you can think of the Muppets as sort of a technology. You can think of TV, you can definitely think of TV as a technology. What we were saying earlier about the television itself being the puppet theater, the stage, and things like that. It was figuring out problems. I think that's just how he thought. He was like, what can I do with this? And you see it later in his um, career, too. If he had not passed away so early, he would have gone full forward into some of the CGI, into some of the computer stuff, and so on. And when you see some of his experiments, he's doing certain quick cuts, certain edits that he would have seen among, you know, D.A. Pennybaker and other independent avant-garde filmmakers that were part of the New York scene especially. He would have had access to this. He would have been able to see screenings in the community and so on and wanted to be part of that. It was the cool kids making cool stuff. <laughs> um, but unlike a lot of them, he had, he did have that luxury. He could go and buy another 8mm, 16mm camera. He could go get film stock. He could, he did some of the work for um, NBC where mm -hmm. he was able to walk in and actually get a contract um, and then get access to video cameras when they were new. Yeah, chroma key technology, something as, as yeah. mundane as that nowadays. Jim loved chroma key technology, wanted to play with it so badly. I think that's one of the reasons he made the Youth 68 documentary, mm -hmm. just so he could put in the chroma key moments in there. Yeah, with chroma key being Super, like yeah, go ahead. green screen green or blue screen. screen. Yeah. It's you know what the weatherman is standing in front of, and that was their <laughs> practical use, but they figured it out on television and with video. And 
course, I would have gone with the Cloverland Cow example, but you know, right. which is one of his my favorite commercials of him that doesn't really fit in with the rest. But yeah, he wanted to try new stuff and like new toys. I think it was also a different time period in that people were actually going to a space where they were showing art films. Right. Um, I don't know where you would even do that now, but it you seems do. like it was a part of the, yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah. And, and so it, I think that that does reflect something about the way that people were watching media at the time, uh, much like the way that they were watching public television, or watch, sorry, watching private television instead of public television. I almost made a successful segue for once yeah. to where we're heading now, which is to Sesame Street. And <laughs> what we have with, with Sesame Street is a show that I think is interesting because it's very, very difficult to point to any earlier educational television in America. Um, or at least anything that we would normally recognize as educational television. I can't think of much. Uh, Mr. Rogers. Mr. Well, Rogers shows up one year before in Canada. Yeah. And there was, there was a predecessor to um, PBS, which was National Education Television, but it wasn't the same. Yeah. It was, had very few national programs. And Sesame Street is coming on the air only a couple years after television is starting to be more firmly right. a national thing that, um, you know, I, I should look up when the tipping point hit where more than half a program would have been national, you know, either from the national networks or the local, or from syndicated shows made by one affiliate. But yeah, he's just getting to, it's getting to the point where that's happening. And NET just never really took off, though. Um, it was got some grant funding, but once they got federal funding behind PBS, mm -hmm. and they started to deliberately plan and so forth, and then they have Mr. Rogers was a hit. Sesame Street was a bigger hit. Right, and and before Sesame Street comes along, you do have attempts at educational television, like Brian was saying. A lot of times, it was an <laughs> it was. It was an educator sitting at a table, staring at the camera, reading their notes, <laughs> or standing in front of a black, it was almost like a filmed high school or college <laughs> lecture. On the, or on the flip side of that, you would have Romper Room, which was essentially a <laughs> kindergarten class with a teacher trying to get control of this class by reading them stories. Some of them, you know, you probably did learn some things from watching the teacher in front of you, but if you're trying to get six-year-olds to actually learn how to read and learn their, their numbers and learn their letters, you can't just have somebody lecturing to them and you can't just make it about kindergarten class. So that was one of the things, what's the quote about TV being the vast wasteland? That had just been said right around the time Sesame Street was coming like out. That. And so I think, I think one of the things that they were doing with Sesame Street is they were saying, look, we're going to take the pedagogy of the people standing and lecturing, but we wanted to have some of the fun of romper room. So they're trying to sort of walk a fine line and do something that hadn't really ever been done before with Sesame Street. And you're also at a time period where, as I point out in the course, we did not have to do the commercial model of television. We could have done a BBC model or La Rai or whatever, but it basically built off of radio, which had gone that direction and gone that way more haphazard because it's very easy to build a radio tower so and start transmitting. I, I just want to clarify, in the UK, yeah. in radio and in television, it starts off being very, very government controlled, it's not privatized, and then they move to uh, the commercial stuff. In the US, we right. immediately were like, no, private ownership. But their public stuff is still much stronger than what we have. 
But there was still regulation over it, and there was always this back and forth. We're probably at our loosest regulatory point right now. But before that, there was a lot of question of what is this doing to people, and if we're going to grant broadcast licenses and things like that, if these three companies are going to have an effective monopoly over the three major channels at the time. Um, what, when you have monopolies or oligopolies, um, the government starts regulating basically with the argument that you should have some form of public obligation. So, the, and this still exists to a certain degree, but it used to be that the networks had to give up a certain number of hours for things that were in the public interest, for public affairs programs and so forth. So they would have to have certain shows that would present politics, that would present political debate, that would be outright educational. Um, and they, as much as they would try to relegate that to being off hours as much as possible, you still see networks filling some obligations at like 7 a.m. on Sunday, for mm -hmm. example. So for the different commercial networks, they were not against public television. They didn't think of it, they didn't think of it as competition, I think, until Sesame Street came on the air. Right. They probably, they were. Yeah, public television was no fun until Sesame Street came mm -hmm. Right, they were like, you want to do this on a national scale and so forth. Um, if you're a network executive, you're thinking to yourself, all right, well, next time the government regulators are coming around or somebody's trying to pass a bill, to make me give up more time where I can actually sell stuff and get eyes on the TV, um, I'm going to say, well, don't you already have this whole national public television program? Why are we paying taxes into that? Um, so the networks were behind it. The networks actually helped build the show a lot, and they weren't ready for it to be on, the cover, be on the cover of Time Magazine within two months. And to be more <laughs> popular than their non-education right. fairyland shows that they were doing in the morning. And, and Jim's involvement in Sesame Street was, Jim comes into the Sesame Street process, the development, a little bit late. Um, Sesame Street, is, Jim would have called them eggheads, is, is actually developed by educators and, and intellectuals putting together a meaningful pedagogy behind this. But they also knew early on that if you're going to hold kids' attention, you need puppets. And people who were familiar with Jim's work from variety shows and from the Wilkins commercials, the, Joan Gans Cooney, who actually is considered the mother of Sesame Street, her first knowledge of Jim was watching Wilkins and Wilkins do terrible things to each other. Um, she was the one who said, you know, we've got we've to bring this guy in. And Jim was so important to Sesame Street that John Stone, who's sort of the father of Sesame Street, said, if you can't get Jim to do puppets, you can't have puppets on Sesame Street. But what initially happened was they kept the Muppets in their own separate segments. Mm -hmm. because the educators were saying, you can't put the puppets on the street, children won't understand this is not reality, and you have, the Muppets have to be by themselves, the grown-ups have to be by themselves, never the twain shall meet. And what they found when they did their first test shows is that the kids were watching and paying attention and engaged when the Muppets were there, and as soon as we went back to poor Gordon and Bob and Mr. Hooper, they all tuned out. Uh, so they knew they had to get puppets onto the street. So Jim's, one of his big contributions, apart from just the Muppet segments, is Jim's one who said, get Big Bird out there. He is the child's point of view. Get Big Bird out there, and weirdly enough, get Oscar out there. So the reason Big Bird and Oscar reside on Sesame Street was to get them onto the street where the real people were living, because the kids were not watching until that happened. You mentioned the way that television was regulated to try to separate programming from time to time, and I think that 
probably relates to uh, the issue of syndication, which is something mm -hmm. we kind of take for granted now. We take it for granted that some amount of television is going to be syndicated. And could you explain a little bit about, first of all, just what syndication is and then how it came about? Then we're going into Sesame Street, right? Uh, I was going to or move not towards Sesame Street to Muppet Show. I'm moving Muppet towards Muppet the Muppet Show. You caught my segue. Yep. Good job. All right. Get ready because learned, this is going to be a boring I ride. learned way <laughs> more about syndication writing this chapter than I ever thought I would know my entire life. <laughs> so take it away. Let's, let's, so, let's take it away. Basically, Sesame Street's a hit. The commercials have been around. Something that we kind of skipped over is Henson had been a fixture on The Tonight Show, on The Jimmy Dean Show, the guy who now sells sausages, used to be a cowboy. Um, cowboy singer. Cowboy singer, and Rolf was one of his regular guest stars. That's where Rolf got his. Rolf was a national star before Kermit. So Henson's known. Henson is a known hot property, and he wants to do a Muppet show. People are questioning it, but it looks like it's going to be able to happen. And he finally starts to get to a point where he's worked out a deal with CBS that they're interested in moving forward. A few of the networks were starting to move that way. <laughs> and then the financial interest and in syndication rules, or FinCEN, were passed, which is basically a packet of reg regulations that said, and there was another rule that went along with it that I'm, is falling out of my head that are Usually people say FinCEN, but there's a whole other packet of legislation that said a certain number of hours have to be independent producers, so the networks can't produce their own stuff. And the idea was it makes more variety for TV. That if the networks are just producing their own show, they're going to go for the lowest common denominator, while if they have to buy a certain amount of outside stuff, there's going to be competition for good product and there's going to be different ideas, different shows. And so a, an example of something that we see syndicated now would be something like uh, Jeopardy, right? Because that's, right. that's not on a specific network. If you yeah. live here, it'll be on with one network. So, if you live somewhere else in the country, it could be on a different network. Exactly, backing up. So syndication is another idea where a, something that's not the network produces a show and networks across the country can buy it and air it when they want. And now Jeopardy, though, does have a deal with, um, or do they on did, here, did ABC they change for the mo ABC or CBS? I can't remember. But, you know, Oprah used to have a deal with ABC where she could be on other networks in certain markets if other networks were going to pay more. But for the most part, you get the idea. And a lot of the times it would come out of one network's doing a local show, the whole country picks it up and sells it across the country. So that's what syndication is, and it's still around now. But not as much because a lot of stuff goes straight to cable and so on, and is just on this one cable channel instead of, and then there's second one syndication. After a show's been on for a while, it's while you'll see The Simpsons or whatever sitcom that's been on a few years in the afternoon on a certain show. But going back to FinCEN, a bunch of regulations said to the TV networks, you can only show so much stuff that you made, and um, you have to buy from outside producers. So these networks that 
they're going through their renewals and cancellations, suddenly it's, they're basically saying, you're losing what averages out to a little bit more than an hour per night of your time slots where you can have shows that you actually produce. So when the networks have been increasing the number of shows they produce and they're suddenly cut back that much, there's suddenly no space. However, CBS is you know, good with Henson right now, so the deal was more or less, if you go and find a way to produce this show, we'll show it on some of your networks. Other regulations made it so that each network, CBS, NBC, ABC, could own and operate a certain number of stations. And because they're limited by number, not as much by market, they're going to pick some of the big major city markets and then the other affiliates are owned by private companies, but make agreements to show what the national network is showing in prime time. So CBS is like, you make the show, we'll show it at the same time on all of our owned and operated stations. Most of the others will follow. So bizarrely, that's how the Muppet Show ends up over in England. I think you can probably talk about that better than Yeah, that. yes. The way it ends up in England is Jim, Jim, Jim Scott, Jim starts working with CBS early uh, with uh, trying to get, you know, fund a pilot through CBS that he thinks will sell. Uh, does a 30-minute pitch reel, which you should Google it or look it up on YouTube. It's hilarious. Mm -hmm. um, and CBS, CBS passes on passes on actually owning the show, but they do say, look, if you can yeah. if you can make this, we'll be happy to show it. Um, and Jim really can't find anybody who will help him make it. He's had he's he's had he's actually had three strikes already. He's made three different pilots with ABC, mm -hmm. um, none of which land. Um, and it's I mean Muppet Show is a real study in perseverance because Jim's been you know Jim's tried three times for this. He knows the Muppets will work. He's been pitching. If you go and, and maybe Karen will talk about this later um, next week. She'll you know there's proposals for a half hour Muppet Show. TV show in his archives is as early as like 1965. Like Jim knows this is going to work, um, but can't can't stick the landing. He can't find anybody that's going to produce it. Finally, he ends up um, talking with Lord Lou Grade in at ATV in England, and I, and it, it, you know it's really one of those where it, it's a it's a good fit. Um, you know because Lou Grade is a guy who like he did Space 1999 and so on. But but Lou Grade comes out of the English version of vaudeville. Uh, he's a showman. Uh, he's sort of an old school showman. Really, sort of gets Jim. Understands what Jim wants to do. And Jim had a real knack for sitting down in business meetings and pulling on puppets and just killing in the room. And Lord Grade really responded to that. And you know, basically tells Jim, without even really having to see much of anything, but just knowing Jim, um, I'll give you one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars per episode for twenty-six episodes, which at that time was a phenomenal amount of money uh, for a half-hour comedy series in syndication. Nineteen seventies. Nineteen seventy-five is when this starts. So I think you know I, I I haven't ever done the actual math on this, but I believe it was the most expensive half-hour comedy, any I think even over net over a network at the time. Because that's the kind of money Lord Grade was going to put into this. Knew Jim was the right guy, but the condition was, I have a studio sitting empty over here in Elstree in London. 
you come and use my studio. So there was a little bit of self-interest in Lord Grey at that point, too. He wanted that space used. This is a space where they'd been making mm -hmm. James Bond movies and things like that. Just sitting empty. I think when they moved in, I think Murder on the Orient Express was the last movie that had ever been made in there. So Jim comes in and essentially just takes over Elstree TV studios. Across the street from him, actually in 1976, George Lucas is making Star Wars in the movie studios across the street from Elstree's TV studios. And so that's when those two sort of size each other up at one point. But anyway, the real reason he ends up in London is because Lord Grey has these studios laying fallow mm -hmm. over there. So Jim, without even really telling his wife or anybody else, signs the papers and is like, we are going to London. And uh, is in London for the next five years. So once they're over there in London, right across from the folks making Star Wars, did that segue, segue, segue ultimately lead to, to Brian's next one? <laughs> <laughs> like I knew you were going to do that. Uh, somewhat, yes. Um, and, and Lucas had a, had a lot of respect for Jim, and Jim had a lot of respect for George Lucas, partly because, again, sort of like Jim with Lord Grey, they were cut out of the same cloth. Uh, they were both these fiercely independent people, owned their own companies. Lucas, it, people forget, Star Wars was essentially an independent film. Mm -hmm. Lucas financed this thing himself, was pissed at 20th Century Fox the entire time, only grudgingly let them distribute it. Um, and really saw a kindred spirit in Jim. But um, what's really going on with Yoda is this is sort of technology transfer between the Henson Company and Lucasfilm. Because Lucas knows he wants Yoda to work. He, Lucas had a number of things that he wanted to, first to put a monkey in a costume and decided that wasn't gonna work. <laughs> so they decided that it was gonna be a puppet. That's the only way to pull this thing off. Uh, and if you want a puppet, you'd better bring in the best puppeteer. So they approached Jim to do Yoda, and Jim actually says, you want Frank Oz to perform, and he's a better performer than I am. But Jim wants to make the Dark Crystal at this time as well, too. He wants the technology you're gonna need to make the Dark Crystal. And who does special effects at this point better than anybody? Lucasfilm. So it's, it's sort of these two corporations um, collaborating, trying to get something out of it. You know, Lucas wants Jim's expertise in performance and puppet building, and Jim wants Lucas's expertise in building these special effects. Yoda is essentially a special effect. Uh, Frank Oz, there's a great quote in, in the book where Frank Oz talks about Yoda being really effing heavy. Um, because, as Frank Oz puts it, they still built a special effect. He's not really an entirely functional puppet. He said the weight, it's, it's built out of rubber that's not entirely pliable. It rests on this part of your hand instead of up here, so he said it was painful to operate for a long time. But they were learning. They were getting the, the, you know, the ears that would wiggle with the remote control thing. So Jim's getting the technology he needs to then move forward with Dark Crystal. So this gets us to Dark Crystal. And I'm interested in this because it seems like through that uh, interaction, whether they knew it or not, they sort of ended up, it seems to me, almost defining a decade of what the special effects uh, of, of the 80s were going to be. Um, can, can you talk at all about any of the other stylistic elements um, or, or, or the special effects elements that factored into a lot of what we know or think we know about 80s special effects cinema? Yeah, where does this one sit, you think, in 80s fantasy cinema? You know, I mean, right. it, it, it wasn't necessarily the, the thing that spawned you know, um, legend or anything like right. that. I think that came more out of Star Wars, but where does this one sit? And it's kind of running parallel to everything. Yeah. It's, it's hard to get its placement, especially because it was a flop. Right. And... Yeah, Jim, I always say, Jim was right about this one, but at the wrong time. Yeah, and, you know, he tried to fix a lot of that with Labyrinth, which... Flopped. But Labyrinth, Labyrinth had a pretty quick turnaround to come back to. You know, jumping... Jumping a little forward before going backwards, Labyrinth flopped 
right when everybody was starting to have VCRs in their house, right. or at least knew somebody who did. So suddenly there's this whole aftermarket for it. Dark Crystal was right before that. It flopped and flopped. Right. And, but in general though, there is a special effect craze that is coming off of Star Wars still. And if you look at some of the reviews for Dark Crystal, um, you can see it is called a Star Wars knockoff, which seems utterly ridiculous. Right. It's, you would think of it now, especially when we see how many genuine Star Wars knockoff, how many <laughs> um, you know, other space-themed films and so on. This is entirely on another planet, a different culture. It's not technology-driven. There are no humans here right. in this film. No, but it's just how much genre, what we now call genre film, wasn't really a thing yet. But it was piling up just because the cost of the special effects were coming down and the technologies were coming into place. Yeah, now, when you, when you watch Dark Crystal, the really wonderful thing about it, and I, <laughs> I, I think Dark Crystal has its problems, um, is everything you see up here is real. I mean, everything exists. Mm -hmm. There are no, there are actually no visual effects in Dark Crystal except for I think a sky at one point, a special <laughs> effect. Everything else you see is built. And what people told me is not only was it built, they said you could walk around behind the set and it yeah. was still finished in the back. You know, in Pixar they call it painting the drawers, like you would, you know, the bottom of the drawers finished. Everything in Dark Crystal is built. Dark Crystal is really important in Jim's development as an artist because Dark Crystal looks exactly the way Jim wants it to look. It's the first time he's been able to put something up on screen that really expresses his own artistic view. Um, this movie baffled people. And I told yeah. Lisa Henson that I was part of their problem. I was 12 when Dark Crystal came out. And I saw this in the theater. And I walked out of there going, what in the hell was that? Um, and, yeah. Jim, and Jim really, really struggled with it as well. And when he's doing his media tour on this, He's trying, like, he's trying his best to promote Dark Crystal and these brand new ideas and these creatures that don't look like anything else. And the first question he gets from everybody is, where are the Muppets? Nobody understood this. Jim was trying yeah. to grow up and nobody was letting him do it. Now you have to understand, Jim with puppets, Jim never thought puppets were for kids. But what had happened to him with Sesame Street was Sesame Street almost boxed him in. Because you saw someone just talking about what was going on in the 60s where Jim's got all these other projects he's juggling and he's really considering himself an avant-garde filmmaker and making good commercials. And then he lands Sesame Street, which becomes hugely successful. And Jim doesn't become just defined as a puppeteer at that point. He becomes defined as a children's puppeteer, which he never considered himself to be. So this is Jim trying to break that mold uh, and sort of a, a very aggressively do it. And, it. and it really doesn't land. And again, partly it's because Dark Crystal has its problems. It's, it's a... I find it to be a terribly slow story. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I think people weren't ready for it. I mean, people weren't ready. This is Jim Henson Productions. I went to the studio, to the theater at age 12 uh, and walked out there going, I don't know what that was. Where are uh, the jokes? Yeah, and that was, I think that was a big part of his problem was expectations were so different for it as well. So yeah. as you know, yeah. uh, Brian, but I'm not sure you know Brian, uh, I've been working <laughs> on this paper that's actually about uh, Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal, mostly Labyrinth. Yeah. That, and I've been, as I've been doing this for an independent study course I'm doing here, I've been trying to contextualize these films within uh, the other fantasy films of the 80s. Because in the 80s, there are just a lot of fantasy films. You don't see many before that, you don't right. see many after right. that. You've got your legend, Willow, uh, Willow Ladyhawk, Never Ending Story. 
And then you get to the end of it where it turns into self-parody with gremlins yeah. right. and things like that. And then pa parody of parody with gremlins too. <laughs> right, you're crossing into the 90s, but yeah. So it's, it's a genre that seems to be all over the place. Some of it's for kids, like Return to Oz. Some of it is definitely not for kids, like a lot of the sword and sorcery films they were doing based on old Pulp Fiction novels. And yeah. so I, I've had to ask, why the 80s? And it's just because the technology is there. And it's also, you see, it's the most logical statement you can make, but the highest artistic point of a use of technology is going to be right before it becomes irrelevant. <laughs> and we were reaching a point where certain effects, certain practical effects, had been developing since the dawn of film, had been developing since Melies, and we're now with some of the drive, with some of the puppetry, and because it was never just the puppetry, Henson was more focused on that, but it was other elements being brought into some of the visual tricks that they figured out they could do. Um, you know, the reach and the money, especially once home video hit, and there was a secondary, stronger secondary market, and with cable, too. That there was this aftermarket with cable that didn't exist. You could put more money behind films and actually get it back. So having that driving into it, you see the biggest advancement in this, and then CGI comes along. Jurassic Park comes along, and it's like... Yeah. I, as I was reading a bit about the history of, of fantasy films, uh, David Butler, who has a great book, a, a nice academic text on, on mm -hmm. fantasy cinema, he talks about how there were a lot of fantasy movies that were actually just waiting in the wings in Hollywood to be made during the 70s. Yeah. And everyone was just afraid to do it. No one was willing to make a fantasy film in the 70s because it just wasn't a genre at the time. Right. It, it just wasn't there. And then Star Wars comes along and suddenly there's this boost in confidence. Like, hey, wait a second. Yeah, maybe something kind of fantastic could right. work. And so then you get this, uh, what Butler calls an 80s fan uh, a fantasy boom mm. in the 80s. And what's interesting is you get different kinds of films during this time that are looking at fantasy literature, um, fairy tales, legend, mythology, all that stuff, in different contexts. Um, they're approaching it in different ways. And that's part of what interests me about this. So if you don't mind, I'm going to go a little bit into what I've been doing for my directed study. A little bit of film analysis, if you will, very briefly, to talk about uh, The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. So with The Dark Crystal, you have basically a fairy tale. It's supposed to be a straight up fairy tale, a pretty standard, uh, myth in most respects, these timeless ideas of good versus evil, and um, what comes with adapting a fairy tale straight is you actually end up with some of the ideology of the classic fairy tale and the classic myth, and that ideology has typically focused, for various historical reasons, on basically obeying and conforming and doing what you're told, um, and being the person your culture, your society wants you to be. And I think with The Dark Crystal, you see a bit of this. I've got this quote here, I will go where you send me, though I barely understand. And it's a whole story about obedience. Uh, you have him conforming to this narrative. You see there's a prophecy. I don't know if you can see the picture well, but there's a prophecy about uh, The Dark Crystal and how the, the last remaining Gelfling is supposed to heal the crystal. So he has a job according to a narrative of what he's supposed to be um, and the graven image of what he's supposed to do. And then you get Labyrinth, which is very different because here you have to be a skeptic. You can't trust the usual rules of fairy tales. Um, the fairies will bite you. Hmm. 
It's not about being obedient. Uh, Jareth the Goblin King, played by David Bowie, tells Jennifer Connelly, do not defy me. And the whole movie is going to be her defying him. And then there's the conformity to the image of, uh, of, the, of the princess. She has this, this music box um, of the, the princess in the ballroom. And she eventually becomes that through some of Jarrett's magic. And then she has to break that when she smashes a mirror, which is in a way smashing this image of herself as, uh, as the fairy tale figure. So it seems to me like there is almost a complete ideological turnaround between the two films. And I've struggled to figure out why, because uh, according to this one article from the New York Times uh, that was promoting The Dark Crystal, the genesis of Labyrinth was Mr. Henson's desire to correct what he sees as the one failure of his 1983 movie, The Dark Crystal. There were no human beings in it. And it's weird to say that's the only thing Henson saw wrong with The Dark Crystal, because he changed so much between The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what some of those changes were and why you think he might have made some of them. Well, I, I do love that, you know, he, he was actually, that's a story he told where he was sitting in car with Brian Froud, who was the, 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 arti the artist behind uh, dark, the development of Dark Crystal and the, the look that it had. And uh, they were leaving a, a showing of it, and the audience had not been terribly enthusiastic. And Jim starts, you know, starts breaking down in laughter about it and saying, well, the next one will be better. The problem is we didn't have any people in it, which just baffles me that he thought that was the problem on it. Um, you know, he ran into a similar problem with Labyrinth, though, because Jim, what Jim loved to do, and I think the reason that both Dark Crystal and Labyrinth look exactly the way Jim wanted them to look, is Jim was really more concerned with sort of what Brian was saying. Jim loved the technology, and he was getting yeah. a lot of technology to play with in both movies. But Jim loved world building. Jim loved world building almost to the cost of plot and story. And so what happens in Labyrinth is Jim, Jim's in his notebooks, he's got very rough notes on Labyrinth, what's he gonna call it. He's got sort of notes on vignettes, but he doesn't really have a plot for Labyrinth. And so he starts bringing in one writer after another mm -hmm. to start working on Labyrinth. And it really becomes sort of the too many cooks syndrome after a while. And he's got great people writing. He's got Elaine May comes in at one point. He's got Terry Jones from Monty Python, who actually I think still has the story credit on it, but it's not really his, his original script isn't really there. There's pieces of it. <laughs> um, you know, he's got, he's, he's got, uh, God, I can't, even, I can't even come up with him right. He just, he brings in one person after another to write the script. Mm -hmm. There's an awful lot of hands on the script for Labyrinth, which is where I think you've got some problems with it. It doesn't have a consistent voice. It doesn't really always have a consistent feel. It doesn't always know what it wants to be. But damn it, if it doesn't look fantastic. <laughs> and that's again because, you know, Jim's worrying about the world building side of it. Jim knows how he wants this thing to look. He loves this dance scene. Uh, he loves the, the Escher room. Um, you know, he told somebody at one point, if you, if you take the Escher room out of my movie, you clearly don't understand my movie. <laughs> so, you know, so Jim, Jim's really, really stuck on the look of this movie, and he's leaving the, the writing of it it's kind of to others at his peril, in a way. Um, because, again, I, I do think that's the biggest problem with Labyrinth. There were an awful lot of hands on the script, but it looks fantastic. Well, if Karen Falk were here, who's the archivist for the Jim Henson Company, I think that she would add you know, in terms of the world building or what it was she, that drove him in certain directions. I point to the technology because that's where I come out of. But it's also, Karen would say, he was a designer. Mm -hmm, absolutely. He did, um, <coughs> he used to work, uh, do a screen printing business here on campus where he would design posters for different plays, different student groups and so forth. Um, you look through his notebooks, he has doodles and sketches. We actually had an exhibit here on campus. Um, Jim Henson, Doodles and Designs, designs I and believe. Doodles. Mm -hmm. Designs and Doodles. Um, 
and yeah, Jim was actually trying to launch a clothing line based on both Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, so. <laughs> which you could do now. Right. Yeah. I um, think they have done it now. Well, or they tried you, to. You, you often see on like T Fury and Teespring and stuff like that. Yeah. Some of the fan designs for Labyrinth and Dark yeah. Crystal. Yeah. So. yeah. He was very into costume balls yeah. every year, and they would. I think he wanted you to be able to dress like Jared. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. Yeah. well and, that's the cosplayers I see at Paris Convention. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, if you launch it now, it would work, but. Um, he was a graphic artist in many ways, and that you can see, especially in these two films. You can see a line with these films and then going back to some of his independent and avant-garde work right. of that aesthetic and that part of him. And he kind of, he, since he was a multimedia artist as well, he, um, he would draw, he would paint, etc. Just being able to grab a new camera, have a... Um, animation stand that he had at one point so he could actually make cartoons, other things like that, is just an extension of him doing stuff like that. <laughs> and he could have had an entire career as, you know, basically a 2D visual artist doing posters. Um, right. Could have been the next Sal Bass. But um, just a quick plug too, if, so Karen from the Henson Company has a background in design and did a book on a lot of Henson's work, materials from the archives. So if you want to see an amazing book of a, um, somebody with a design aesthetic doing a book about somebody with a design aesthetic, <laughs> yeah. Imagination Illustrated, it's worth looking up. Beautiful yeah. book. Absolutely. And, and the other fun thing about, about Labyrinth, and this again gets back to Brian's point about Jim as the gadget guy who loves, so Jim actually has CGI in Labyrinth, but it's not any place you would expect it. Jim, <laughs> Jim blows his load very early. He, puts the, he uses CGI for the opening credits. Um, mm -hmm. There's an owl that's flying over the opening credits. So it's the, actually the very first time we actually had a real non-fantasy animal. It, animated by the computer, you'd had spaceships and you know some dragons and things. It's the first not. It's the first actual real animal. It's a white owl flying over the opening credits, and which is you know water and a dro dropping in the water, and um, that's Jim CGI. He sort of he sort of like he was so excited about it. He uses it on the opening credits and gets it out of the way. And there's yeah. no more CGI in the movie. After that. He did that twice in his career. He, he does it with the Jim Henson Hour. He, the Jim Henson Hour. He blew. How much of his season one budget on this? And didn't and, care. And it doesn't. The opening to Labyrinth still looks good. The opening to the Jim Henson Hour. It looks like a local commercial. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. it does. It looks like when your um, local car dealership decides to have a CGI character. Yeah. So at this point, I mean, once once he's moved from Labyrinth, the Dark Crystal has flopped. Uh, Labyrinth has flopped, and then the Jim Henson Hour comes along, and it, it flops. Flopped. Um, it seems like where that leaves uh, Jim is to go over to the folks at Disney. And so I was wondering, now that we're at the end of his life and the end of his career and we're moving towards what I think should be the end of our presentation, yeah, it's time to end this presentation. Uh, can we talk a little bit? We're, we're over already. Um, but, but let's talk just a little bit. How does Jim end up at Disney and what's he supposed to be doing for Disney? Do you want to take it? I'll take at least part of it. So Disney was kind of at a rough spot too. Yeah. Um, so something interesting about Disney is their archives have always been good. Something that I do research on is a lot of the major film studios, they didn't care about a film after it was first released. There wasn't home video. 
there's three networks and maybe a couple, you know, local only channels um, that are your markets for movies. But, you know, 90% of the movies that you make aren't ever going to be shown again after their initial release, or at least a couple years after. But with, so the film studios would let them rot. Um, in the early um, days of cinema, they deliberately destroy them because nitrate could catch on fire and kill everybody. So Disney was different. They kept everything because it was, it lasted. Once Disney got the deal to make cartoons with Technicolor, and once he did Snow White, you could always bring back an older Mickey Mouse and put it in front of a movie, at least in the first couple decades. You could, um, every few years they would put Snow White back in the theaters and it would make money again. Or Cinderella or... Um, Pinocchio. Hmm? Pinocchio was the big one. Pinocchio. Yeah. Um, not Fantasia, because that didn't make money. <laughs> but the point, the point being, they were doing film preservation before the other major studios. And then Disney jumped hard onto TV and would use some of his past material in that. And by the time you get to the 80s, they're in a bizarre place. Everybody knows who Mickey Mouse is. Everybody knows who Donald Duck is. Everybody wants to see some of the features. Um, the TV market is growing with cable. It's growing with... Um, we're getting home video too. So they're profitable. And they have all these assets. They've got the theme parks too that people are still going to. And they can't make a movie anybody cares about. Mm -hmm. um, oddly enough, the one place where they were doing okay is it's when they start the Disney afternoon with DuckTales and um, Rescue Rangers and all that as a syndicated afternoon um, packet. Um, that was a hit, but that's not enough to drive that big of a company. Um, and we're just a few years away from Little Mermaid hitting and that being a streak into, I'm trying to think of the sequence, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, right. close enough. The, the Disney Renaissance. Yeah, the, the Disney movie. Renaissance, but we're not there yet. Right. Um, Disney's been dead for years. They have a good corporate culture, they're able to leverage assets, but um, they need a face for the company and they need a creative force to keep them going and create new assets and new stuff. Right. Um, Jim Henson is struggling and he's starting to realize part of his problem is he's got so many people working for him, you know, across an ocean, he's got the creature shop running in London, He's doing the Muppet stuff in New York, and he needs some of the stuff taken off of him. So he works out a handshake deal for him to be bought out by Disney, but it's he's part of the assets that Disney wants. Disney wants him as the face of the company, somebody who can go on TV the same way that Disney used to on ABC, and in fact, um, doing the Jim Henson Hour was trying to mimic some of the classic Walt Disney mm -hmm. programs that they had on prime time in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, had they let Jim do uh, the Jim Henson Hour the way he wanted to, I think it, I think it probably would have worked. Um, I think it would have looked, it looked a lot like the Walt Disney 
present show. It was Jim coming out on camera and talking. And Jim had a very sort of firm grip on what he wanted to do with the Jim Henson Hour, and NBC never really let him do it. I, I don't know why NBC got nervous about that. They said, that all sounds great, take everything and put it in one show. Whereas Jim said, in week one I want to do a behind the scenes with the Muppets, and then in week two I want to do a storyteller, and then in week three I want to do something like the Tales of the Bunny Pick. Like he, had a, he actually had a strategy for this, and, and NBC, I don't know why they lost their confidence in him. They said, that sounds great, put it all in there. So Jim Henson Hour was very schizophrenic. It didn't know what it wanted yeah. to be, and it doesn't. It, it, it I, the, the, it's not very funny. I mean, watching it, there's <laughs> no. some incredibly painful moments to watch in the show. Yeah. And it's, but it's the first time. A lot of people. The common narrative for years was, Jim was so upset that Labyrinth failed that he decided to sell his company to Disney. The timeline doesn't line up. Uh, but the main thing is that was the first time the Muppets had ever bombed on TV, and I think that really spooked him. Uh, and as Brian was saying, part of it was he was really being stretched in a lot of, lot of different directions. He was trying to hold this big company together that's essentially being run out of a brownstone in New York City. Yep. Um, and Jim's, you know, Jim had this personality that wherever he was, you know, if he's in New York or he's in London, wherever he was tended to feel very loved and very special and very involved and where he wasn't was pissed. Um, so Jim's got this corporate culture. He's trying to get off his back finally. So that's one. Of the, that's why Disney was very attractive. And also remember, Disney has managed uh, Mary Poppins. They've managed A. Milne and Winnie the Pooh. Mm -hmm. like they know how to. They know how to manage an icon. Right. And Jim knows that his characters are icons, and Disney knows that too. So for Jim, Disney was a very safe place to be. He gets to put Muppets in theme parks. He gets to put them in theme parks. And they also have the advertising juggernaut behind them that Jim just doesn't have. They've got resources Jim doesn't have. But as Brian says, one of the very important parts of this deal was Disney wanted Jim. Um, and what Jim wanted out of this deal is very interesting. Jim wanted sort of two things. He wanted um, to be sure that he could still be involved in the hiring of Muppet performers. He kept trying to, he, he, he was very annoyed with the Disney attorneys who were just, who would talk about these characters as if they were animated characters. And Jim kept saying, puppetry takes a long time. It's an art to learn. You have to bring the puppeteers along with you. You can't just get a toy box with Miss Piggy and Fozzie. You have to have Frank Oz. So he was really looking out for his puppeteers the whole time. But the other thing he wanted was his own independent film company. So he yep. could go off and go do whatever he wanted. And a lot of people I talked to said that they really thought Jim was at a point in his career where he could have done a 10, a 15 year exclusive with Disney, the Muppets, and just turned his back on the Muppets and walked away and done something else. So when people say, what would Jim think of the Muppets? Would he like how Disney's handling Muppets? I think in Jim's lifetime even, he was willing to just say, look, the Muppets are yours. You go do yeah. something great with them. I'm going to do a lot of other stuff. I, you know, the Muppets are, you, you, can, you take good care of them, please. Uh, but I'm off to do other things. But as Brian was saying, it was also it was a handshake of a deal. Um, they sort of agreed to it, and then they started working out the details. And Jim, Jim was very, like I said, he was very frustrated, mainly over, it was primarily Jeffrey Katzenberg, yeah. um, very upset that they were so cavalierly treating the puppets as just this commodity, just a toy box, whereas Jim kept saying, it is an art, you don't respect that. And if I have to keep, there's a great line in the book is where he writes him, I don't think he ever sent the letter, but he told Michael Eisner, if I have to keep justifying my value, I don't think this is, is a company I want to be associated with. So, so it, was, it was a very tough negotiation for them. Um, but when Jim died in the middle of it, um, both companies kind of held on to try to see if they could figure it out. And as one of their attorneys told me with the company, just the joy was gone. But I think a big part of it, too, is Disney was going to spend an awful lot of money to acquire the Henson Company so they could get Jim Henson. Uh, and without him in the deal, it just I think you know, the math just didn't work. And I think it's worth, for those who don't know what ultimately happened, um, yeah, Jim Henson passes away suddenly in the middle of it. Um, 
I can't remember what the actual diagnosis was, but a it was fluke. a staph infection, it's yeah. a streptococcal infection. And the deal fizzles out. Um, the Henson Ayers run the company for a few years. So a couple of the um, Muppet films that came along after, uh, Muppet Christmas Carol is the first one where Jim's not in it. And it's not just, you know, he had already passed on um, Muppets Take Manhattan had been done by Frank Oz, um, who is Miss Piggy and is um, Fozzie and Fozzie. Thank Grover. At the beginning of this talk, <laughs> I would have had it perfectly. Um, but and Bert and so on. But he was willing to hand on the reins and just show up in that as a performer. Fraggle Rock. He doesn't even perform in Fraggle Rock. Hardly. Yeah, yeah he's he got plays two a supporting guest characters. characters yeah. But and for the most part, it's somebody else's production, even yeah. though the title is. Jim Henson's mm -hmm. Fraggle Rock, when you look at the credits. So he's not just a person, he's a brand. And, but, you know, so it goes, his heirs, especially Brian Henson, his son, who mm -hmm. did become a significant performer, are taking over. They do Muppet Christmas Carol and a couple other Treasure things. Island. Treasure, Muppet Treasure Island, Muppets in Space. Mm. Um, but, Ultimate, they tried to do a new show on ABC. Ultimately, they decided they just weren't into it. So a German company buys the Henson Company wholesale. They blindside the Sesame Street folks because they sold the Sesame Street characters. The deal with Disney was always, you can have Kermit and the whole gang, the Muppets. You can't have the Sesame Street stuff. Right. This German company, they buy the Henson assets and have big plans. And then they announce the next week, we've bought Formula One racing. Like, all of Formula One racing. And then they go bankrupt. So the Henson heirs, since nothing was happening with it, they, the last thing they wanted to see was for Jim's work to be shelved. They buy everything back, and then they, all, they decide to keep some core properties. Fraggle Rock, they own the rights to Labyrinth, um, if not to distribute the film, then the intellectual property of the characters, or Dark Crystal, or all that stuff. Or the Big Blue House. Um, they sell the Sesame Street characters to Children's Television Workshop, which produces Sesame Street. So basically taking them home, it had always been a contract deal where Jim technically owned them and thus got the merchandising rights. Um, or it was a split deal. It was a split deal, but Jim negotiated it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, technically probably could have always pulled the Muppets out or his the characters on the show out. Um, yeah. And then they yeah, In the same way that Lucasfilm was built on the back of action figures, Henson Company was built on the back of Sesame Street onesies. And Pretty much. Exactly. Um, and then he sells off the core Muppet characters to Disney. So they still contract with the Henson Company a lot, work with the performers, they still build the puppets, all that stuff, but the Muppet, and a lot of the assets, the Muppet show, some of the movies, but since they had multiple distributors, it's a whole mess. You wanted to talk a bit, now that we're, we're at, yeah. I think the last slide, this is one slide that you wanted me to present. Um, yeah. The one that you asked for, it's a, it's a shot from an episode of The Muppet Show in, I want to say the late 
No, it would have been the early 1980s um, mm -hmm. when the cast of Star Wars was the guest star or the guest stars on The Muppet Show. And there's a scene they do at the end here where they sing When You Wish Upon a Star <laughs> with a yeah. mock yeah. Disneyland castle in the background. And this is why when I teach this class you learn more about media economics than you from Muppets than you could from an actual straight media economics course. So here we have <laughs> the Muppets, so which are independently owned at the time. We have the Star Wars characters, owned by George Lucas, distributed by Fox. Um, we have, that's Gonzo as Darth Nader. I don't think you can see that well here. Um, you have a Disneyland-style castle, and they are singing When You Wish Upon a Star from the film Pinocchio. Um, and all this, rights used to not be handled that firmly. It used to be, you'd get a lot more handshakes and things like that for what you'd be allowed to do. But <laughs> you have several different, you have Disney, Lucas's independent stuff, with a little bit of Fox thrown in, and Jim Henson's independent stuff. These are everything that's happening here is now owned by Disney. Um, a lot of it is regulatory, a lot of it is financial practices and you know growth, especially when you have this long tail of profit after you make something that it's you know, and we could have even more thrown in. We could have Alien and Predator running in. Um, we could have <laughs> Captain Iron America Man through and Captain America. Um, you know, a bunch of Pixar characters, but the Henson Company. I'm trying to think. They were, and I know this, but I'm just after an hour. I'm not thinking. Of <laughs> um, they were either right before. They were right before the Pixar. Yeah. Um, they were 2006, so I think five. they were five. Right. So they, they were, were a little right after, after. Pixar. Yeah. So basically, Disney did great, and then Disney was struggling again because Disney goes in waves, and they might be done with that now. Now they own everything. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much left. Um, yeah, and they're going to buy Fox. Mm -hmm. They did buy Fox. No. Yeah, well, they're in the closing they're deals of it. Oh, there it's a closing yeah, deals. It'll, it'll happen again. They always go away. It'll happen. Yeah. Again. But yeah, you could have Bart Simpson in this too, by the way. Yeah, sure. um, yeah, so Disney, the latest one is they bought Fox, except for Fox News, Fox Sports, they didn't, because that would have been conflict of interest with ESPN. them owning ESPN. Um, Fox News, nobody wants it. Um, and they would have. Um, what, they didn't buy the Fox network. They bought some of the cable channels, though. But and yeah, with that. Well, well, quickly, though, with the slump, they ultimately did, with Pixar, what they were trying to do with Jim Henson. They were struggling creatively. Right. They needed a new force in. Pixar was killing it. They had hit after hit yep. after hit. And they more or less did an inversion. That it's like, all right, our corporate guys are still our corporate guys, except 
we're firing our main corporate guy because he's <laughs> messed up, Michael Eisner at the time. Right. And then the Pixar guys came in and they gave him the creative force for the company. Well, and that was partly what they wanted Jim to do, and I, I almost yeah. hate to bring the name up because it's such a dirty word now, but like they essentially wanted Jim to be what John Lasseter did. <laughs> not, not everything John Lasseter did, but, yeah. um, they, but John Lasseter came in and started designing park attractions and designing rides inside, and they, that mm -hmm. was the thing they were going to let Jim do. Jim loved the fact they were going to let him play in the park and develop attractions, and so that's, I mean, that's Lasseter got the job that they wanted Jim to do. That actually they wanted George Lucas to do one, but they'd approached him uh, in the late in the mid '80s about taking over the Disney company. So that's that was they were always looking for, as he was saying, somebody to be the face of the company. Jim was going to be the face of the company had they acquired that. Yeah. So since we are uh, running over on time, I'm not sure I even want to ask this question. But does anyone have any questions that you would like to ask any of us up here tonight? Comments, concerns. Insults. Would you like to be Stadler and Waldorf for a moment and go ahead? And I'd like to hear more about the writing process. How one goes about writing a biography, especially when some of your primary sources are dropping like flies. Um, yeah. How do yeah. you how do you get to know Jim so well? You're talking about him like you know what was going on in his head. How do you do that? <laughs> well, one of the, the the issue you bring up about losing people was one of the the things I raised with the Hensons when I approached them in 2010, I think, on the project. Jim had been dead 20 years at that point. And I think the week or month that I approached him, Jerry Joel had just died, his head writer. His agent, Bernie Brillstein, had died. Um, uh, somebody else, big, his, his, so his agent, Jerry, and one other person had just said, so, so I, I went to them and said, you know, you've, you've got a ticking clock now, which you haven't had before. Um, so, um, you know, you really wanted to, Jerry Nelson was ill at the time. Jane, even his widow, had cancer at that time, although I didn't know that. Um, so I think that they understood that there was actually an urgency. So, so that was one of the cases I was able to make them that start to get these people on the record now while memories are still good and while people are still around. Uh, it took me about three years, actually, to convince the family to let me to do it. Um, part of the issue I had was they'd been sort of burnt at one point in the, in the early 90s by somebody that came in and and wrote this, wrote a biography that they, they had a, an agreement enough with it that they could shelve it when they didn't like it. And I never read it. Um, but I, I did have access to some of the notes or the interviews that this person had. I was, I was permitted to see interviews with anybody who was dead. Uh, anybody who was alive, I had to conduct my own interviews. But like he had interviews with Richard Hunt and with David Laser, who actually turned out wasn't dead. Um, but a lot of people who had passed. And so I had the benefit of those notes. Um, as well, but the big thing I got was access to the Henson archives from it. So, um, and the other big advantage I have is because the Hensons had signed off on it. It wasn't an authorized biography in that the Hensons had no say over the final content. Um, but I actually let them read every single draft as it went mm -hmm. along so they could see what I was doing and see, you know, because, you know, they knew all along, they all knew that Jim was not faithful to Jane, and they were they were concerned about that narrative. And I think they saw how I was handling it. They were okay with that. But it had to be very odd for them to have this stranger come and tell them stories that, I mean, everybody I talked to had a story. Um, to hear these stories from other people they knew talking about Jim and being, you know, translated them in third person by a stranger, I know it had to be very hard for them. And to their credit, they, they were fantastic about it. Um, so I, so having, but having them on board also meant that when I would say, you know, I would really love to talk with this person. Oh, you know who you need to talk with? You actually should, you should actually call, you know, the, the, uh, Larry, uh, Larry Merkin up in Toronto, who was the lead writer on Fraggle Rock. We've got a contact for him. So like, so they gave me a lot of really good, the, the advantage to get in touch with a lot of people and have the Hensons in my corner. Uh, when I was writing the George Lucas biography, I did not have George Lucas in my corner. 
Um, I did make a run at him because I knew he had read the Jim Henson biography and liked it. So I thought, well, great, he's dying to be done and not so much. Um, so that one was hard because um, I approached a couple of people who had worked for him and they all had signed non-disclosure agreements. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a tougher nut to crack. But you know, Lucas's issue, again, was the same as the Henson's in that he had been the subject of an authorized biography, if you will, in 1983 that he hated. He hated it. So he's never played again. Uh, and I actually talked with the biographer wrote that. I said, thanks, Dale, you ruined it for everybody. Um, but but Lucas's, Lucas's position is, well, I'm a very private person. And, but Star Wars is its own cottage industry. Indiana Jones mm -hmm. is its own cottage industry. Pixar, which everybody maybe doesn't, doesn't know, that's Lucas's mm -hmm. company. He created Pixar. To this yeah. day, after selling it for whatever, he still calls it my company. Spun out uh, industrial lighting. Yeah, spun out, so ILM. He owns, anyway, so like all these things he's done have their own cottage. There's so much information out there. And the cat talks way more than he thinks he does. So there was actually plenty to work with with him. Whereas with Jim, um, he really only sat for about three big interviews in his life. Just remember, he died at age 53. So there wasn't a lot, there wasn't even a lot of stuff uh, in the public to look at. A lot of times he sat down for an interview. Lucas sits for interviews all the time because he's always out promoting something. Jim didn't really do that. So I had the advantage inside the company of just finding, you know, correspondence and, you know, getting a look into his mind by just letters he wrote and, you know, what this, you know, there's letters where if he was angry. I found the letter he had written actually, which I don't think he ever sent, to Jeffrey Katzenberg during the Disney negotiations uh, where he, I mean, he was just venting his spleen in this thing and I think knew it was a bad idea to send it. Um, but so that's the advantage of getting into archives and trying to get that handle on a voice. Um, and I did have, I did have, I did find David Laser, who was Jim's producer later, who wrote me a note and said, um, I think you got him. So that was nice to hear. Um, and the Muppet performers told me they thought that I, that I got him too. Um, but again, it's just, it's sitting there day in, day out in an archive, <laughs> taking out, and Karen will talk about this. Karen was great. Karen lugged around boxes for me and helped me make photocopies. But you just open up a folder of even contracts and you just keep turning them over because you never know what might be on the back where somebody thought nobody would ever be looking. And you would just find notes. You know, one of my a moment that I love is Jim would ask his um, his staff from time to time during the Muppet Show, "Tell me who you want." Especially when they were huge and everybody wanted to do the Muppet Show. In the early years, they had to go begging, but in the later years, Jim said, "Tell me who you want. Tell me who you want." And you know, Brian Henson said, "Debbie Harry, let's get Debbie Harry." Um, but he would say he, he would have his staff submit him lists of people they wanted, and you know, the the writers wanted the Beatles and they wanted Monty Python, and mm -hmm. and Jim would take a piece of yellow paper out. He always wrote on yellow notepads with black felt tip pen. He did that for 30 years. And he drew a line down the middle, he wrote men in one column, women in the other, and he just starts making these lists. And Jim would have these surprisingly stodgy lists, like he'd be like, Mae West, you know, like Mae West, even in 1976, that was a long time ago. Um, but at the bottom of the column for women, he had written all the way at the bottom of the page, he wrote Liberace, the pianist, a man. And I thought that was so funny for some reason. I could almost, for some reason, I could almost hear him like giggling as he wrote this down on here. He thought it was so funny. And the irony of that is of everybody on that page, Liberace is the only person he got uh, from that show. But I mean, I just, I, I love that moment. Like you don't get that unless you've seen the document and seen the way he's writing this down and he's putting, dropping people into columns and add, other people submitting names and he's scribbling them in. The other thing Jim would do was he, would, he loved to, he loved the way names sounded. Fraggle was a word, for example, he, he'd been poking with since mm -hmm. the 60s. He had something called frackles at one point in the Great Santa Claus. Great Santa Claus switch. switch. Uh, he loved the way words sounded. He would actually, the first thing he would even do with the character was he would take out those yellow pads with his felt tip pen and start writing names down. And then he'd finally circle one 
to find and to find and almost always that was the one he the one he circled was the right name but he he might write 20 names on the page and he figured out this is the right one you know Rolf the dog has you know Wolfington and Barkley which ended up on Sesame Street and, mm-hmm. and but he has this whole list of names before he picks Rolf out of there so so th- that's why I talked about in the very beginning of one of the things I that I think is important for biographers is is you know tangible items you know, things you can touch in your hand and see and understand. Because, again, just seeing his own handwriting and seeing what he's thinking is very telling. Even, you know, there, there, there's, something, there, there's something that transcends just the, the, the substance, the, the actual word. You get a sort of a feel for what they were after, what they were, what they were thinking at that time. Whether they've, you can tell, you know, Jim, Jim didn't like to talk about money and he had a TV Guide article where somebody had made a guess that oh, Jim, last year Jim must have made $1.2 million. Jim scratched that out so hard he tore the page. Um, which again, you, don't, you won't see that unless you've had that document in your hand. You know, Jim did not like talking about money. He scratched it out, tore the page on it. He was so mad. So, that, so that's the fun of biography is getting to handle that kind of thing. You don't, you don't get that a lot. I didn't get that with George Lucas, but uh, with Jim I got it. So hopefully this has been inspiring for you and maybe you've learned a little bit about the history of Jim Henson and about the history of the entertainment industry at large. So let's thank our two amazing guests, Brian and Brian. You are relieved, go home. (laughs) And that brings us to the end of another one. By the way, as you might know, the essay that I was talking about in our little chat I actually did turn into a video essay, which you can watch on YouTube. It's called To Solve the Labyrinth. I got that from a line in the movie in which Jared says, you have 13 hours in which to solve the labyrinth before your baby brother. Well, anyway, um, To Solve the Labyrinth, an essay film about a fantasy film. It's on YouTube if you'd like to watch it. It's about an hour long. And yeah, it gets really nerdy. And I pull some things from this talk, some stuff from uh, Brian J. Jones' book. And I was really happy to have uh, Brian at the university with us for this event. It was a lot of fun. Um, one of the things that Brian Real mentioned that was in a section that I cut for time uh, was that Fraggle Rock was really the first HBO original series. We didn't get to touch on Fraggle Rock over the course of the talk, but I think it just goes to show you uh, that when you just keep looking and you just keep digging, you'll always find more and more and more ways Uh, that Jim Henson was really at the vanguard of uh, pretty much every form of media he was involved in throughout his career. All right, until next time, I'm J.D. Hansel, and I am the property of the Walt Disney Company.